Hello and welcome to another episode of Get Out of Rap. Today, in response to a lot of requests for this topic, I'm very lucky to be joined by Helen Jinman. And Helen is founder of Unique and Inclusive Wellbeing and is an expert on mental health. And we're going to be, that'll be our topic today. And in terms of Helen's background, after working uh, in contact centres for 14 years, most recently as a senior director of operations, Helen started her own business working with organisations to promote positive mental health and well-being. And that was to transform environments within the workplace to prevent poor mental health and better support those who, who do struggle. So, Helen, thank you very much and welcome. Thank you very much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Great, great. So I'm really interested in your um, your background. It's, uh, you, you mentioned before we hit record that you'd been in contact centres for 14 years and most recently the Senior Director of Operations. What, what, what is your background then? So I, I started back in the contact centre when I left school at 18 um, and, and at the time I joined the contact centre because it paid more money than the other job I'd gone for. So I, uh, I joined that company and I was really lucky to you know, have the opportunity to progress my career at quite a rapid rate. And I went through training departments, I led reservations teams, uh, customer service teams, you know, and ultimately ending in um, and being senior director of operations. Um, so I've had a wonderful career and seen lots of different things at lots of different angles and, and seen lots of different changes across um, the past decade or so uh, with contact centres and, and how they've you know, transformed the way that we think about them and, and the way that they work today. Wow, so you have, you have had a, a varied trip across quite a lot of, lot of departments there then. And um, what then led to you was wanting to start your own business and specifically within the area of uh, well-being and mental health well-being? Was that something that had always been of interest and in the back of your mind? Yeah, I mean, you know, when you're working with people all the time, you're, you're consciously aware of how they're feeling when they're in the workplace, you know, and you want to get the best out of them. Um, and you've got to work out how to do that, how to motivate, how to inspire, how to influence and how, how to drive that you know, good performance and that good commitment and loyalty from employees. And a huge piece of that is how, you know, how, our, our, how, how our health is, how we feel when we come into work. So I think the two have always gone hand in hand. Um, you know, I've always struggled personally from depression and anxiety. It's um, played, with me, played with me with uh, much of my life. Um, and I've seen firsthand how people can struggle in the workplace um, with their mental health and well-being and how impacting it can be to people's lives. So for me, it, it made sense to combine the two. It made sense to combine the business experience and, and combine that with my own personal journey with, with mental health and well-being and to think about how we can influence uh, much more on a greater scale um, for those that are struggling. That's fascinating. And you, um, so from your own um, journey and also seeing and being heavily involved and um, working in the contact centre environment, specifically in that, what are for you then some of the, what are some of the things that you've seen and you help people with now in terms of their contact centre and the key triggers that kind of exist within them? Mm, and I, so there's, I think there's many 
many triggers in a contact centre. And I think it's by by nature of what they do and how they support customers. You know, we've seen this evolution of technology and customer demands that are continuously changing and shaping. And because we had the big craze around maximising the customer experience and mapping out that customer journey. And with that came increasing technology, things that we could do to monitor staff, monitor, measure, control over and covert electronic monitoring systems, you know, making sure employees complied with precise operating procedures. Um, you know, every action these days is often logged and measured with tech, with targets and performances displayed on whiteboards all the way around the office. And you know, that excessive monitoring sometimes can cause higher levels of anxiety within people, you know, that constant um, measuring, if you like, of what everybody's doing at any given time. And of course, contact centres have, you know, over the years lost autonomy and some of the analysts, you know, we've outsourced and offshored different tasks. Some of those more complex tasks have been reduced and made more simpler, you know, more, uh, have been made more simple. Um, and, you know, that computerised way of doing things, you know, nowadays you've got um, customers that can do all of, a lot of the things automatically on the phone before they even reach an analyst. Mm. Um, so as a result of that, some of the work that analysts are doing now loses that sense of autonomy and kind of that monotony of the same work day in, day in, day out. Contact centres face absenteeism and turnover. You know, it's still a, a tremendous challenge for contact centres is facing with absenteeism and turnover. You know, typically you're getting people that are coming out of graduates or even, you know, younger at 18, 19. Um, and it's not something necessarily that they, they see their whole career ahead of them within that area. So you do tend to see higher levels of, of churn. Um, and of course, you know, availability of staff, workforce management plays a big part a big piece in deciding um, deciding what the impact is to staff and their day and how that's going to look and how much they need to do over a given time and given period. Um, so that can influence people's health. You know, that lack of autonomy, somebody else controlling what they do and how they do it. And sometimes, you know, feeling like you can't always do what you're being asked to do. And I also think within contact centres, there's this continuing conflict. You know, there's always this conflict, uh, need to be cost efficient, and this desire to be customer orientated. So on the one hand, organisations are seeking to increase the speed with which calls and emails and, and social media are processed. But on the other hand, you know, they underscore the importance of customer service and encourage their employees to be quality orientated. You know, so as a result of that, managers are continu continuously searching for new ways to combat that issue, which seems to be intrinsic to work within the industry. But of course, you know, that, that, that effect is felt on the analyst perspective. So I think there's lots of different things that come into play when we're in the contact centre that perhaps aren't so prevalent in other industries or, or other organisations. That, that is then paints a, paints a picture of if you want to ensure that the frontline team members are absolutely in the best position to deliver against all of these requirements is it not then the job of everyone else because everything you've described there is all encompassing right it goes yeah. from it goes from even just the physical environment through to how people are frontline team members are supported coached to better enable them to not only cope in this environment but thrive in it as well um, and that's 
then before you even touch upon mental health, I guess, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you're creating this culture that you're right in saying and enabling people to thrive in it. You know, we recognise that some of those challenges are, challenges are intrinsic to contact centres. You know, we are about workforce optimization. We are about performance measures and targets and giving the best um, experience to our customers. That's not going to change in the contact centre world. Um, so we've got to find ways to be able to better support those staff even before we get into you know, the mental health challenges that go alongside that. And how have you seen then in your um, experience, how have you seen just how mental health is approached to change? Say that again, sorry. How, how have you seen in your experience um, how the approach to mental health within contact centres has changed? Or what is it that, for example, your company, Brick, can bring? And how do you approach mental health? And how has that differed from, from the past and from a time when you were um, leading the contact centre? Yeah, I think even just the 14 years ago, you know, mental health wasn't talked about. It was a taboo subject and arguably still remains in some instances quite a taboo subject. There's still a huge amount of stigma attached to mental health. Um, but over the last two years or so, mental health has, and its focus, if you like, has just exploded. You know? So I think, you know, with that recognition and that kind of growing awareness in society, more and more organisations are now starting to embrace the idea of what mental health means for them in the workplace. So I think there's much more of this acceptance that people will struggle with their mental health, that that's okay that people do struggle with that. And how do we better support those staff when they're in work to stay in work and you know not to lose their jobs or to go off sick or absence and, and making that reasonable adjustments if we need to whilst they go through their challenges. Now, I always say, you know, mental health doesn't affect your capability to do a job. It doesn't change your skills. It doesn't change your experience. It doesn't change the training that you have, have had of all those years. What it does is it affects your capacity at a given point in time for a period of time. Um, and, and a lot of time, people who are struggling with their health will feel like, particularly in the workplace, that they are going to be judged on their capability to do the job. And actually, it's not. And, and what we have to educate people on is including you know, leaders and managers and CEOs, as well as employees, that actually it's affecting capacity for a period of time. It doesn't change all the things, you know, all the, the skills and experience that we've built up over that period of time. It just doesn't. We just have to make those adjustments within that period of time to be able to better support somebody when they are in a period where they're struggling with their health. Is that, um, I saw there's a, a local artist where I am and she she paints her, all of her art actually is born out of her mental health challenges. And one of them that stuck with me, I think, is this what you mean that she, um, the, in, in the monks, the painting, it has the words, I am not my disorder. And mm. in her write up underneath it, she said that um, people don't understand that in her instance, it's depression. Depression is a, a chapter. It's a pass. It's a, it isn't her. So is that what you mean in terms of uh, whilst there's better understanding people, the, the next stage of development is understanding that it, this is a moment in time for people and it shouldn't mm -hmm. be how you, how you judge them and their capability. It's the same as uh, if you're suffering from a, a physical illness that has a set end date, you, you're not, oh, you're Martin with the broken arm. You know, you are 
you are Martin or you happens to have a broken arm right now. Is, is that mm. what you mean? Yeah, exactly like that. You know, mental health doesn't define us. It doesn't, you know, we shouldn't judge people that have a mental illness and say you can't be the next CEO of this company because you experience depression. You know, I was a senior director of operations and I suffered with depression in an attempt to take in my life twice whilst I was, you know, extremely successful in a career. So that health doesn't define me and doesn't mean that I can't succeed in life. You know, it's, it impacts me in certain ways and affects me in different ways. And that's what mental health does. It affects people in different ways. And, but it's not something that defines us. How would you, um, you know, that, that, that level of sharing, and thank you for sharing that, I think it's important that people can see that you can be successful and still have had mental health issues or ongoing issues that um, you're managing one of the things that I think um, I've seen is there is awareness and there is empathy from a senior leader perspective, but then there's some trepidation um, born out of the right reasons, but there's trepidation as to how to then address that, whether on an individual level or more importantly, on a, on a whole contact center level. So, not sure if I'm verbalizing this correctly but there's I think I've spoken to senior leaders who say they recognize that there's that mental health is is a thing it is the the stigma is being eroded it's like you said at the outset there's still some work to do but it's being eroded but then where they are tentative is in taking a step to practical implementation of things that would help because they're worried about getting it wrong. Mm. And, and, you know, you've hit the nail on the head. One of the biggest challenges in getting people to kind of commit to investing in the, in the health and well-being is knowing what to do and how to do it and what happens if you get it wrong. I mean, you imagine you know, a leader in the business that's talking to an employee that perhaps hasn't had training or experience or hasn't got a significant amount of awareness being faced with somebody who's saying potentially to you that you know they're really unhappy in their life that they're really really struggling and actually they've had suicidal thoughts and there's a huge amount of responsibility that then sits on that leader you know as what happens if that that, that debate of what happens if something does happen to that person um, and I think that's a tremendous tremendous weight to bear on a leader's shoulder you know what if I say the wrong thing and we can counter those things by driving education and driving awareness. And I always say to people, you know, if your friend came to you and said, I'm really, really struggling with my health at the moment. I've been, you know, I'm really upset. I'm crying all the time. I'm struggling to get out of bed. You would say to them, that sounds absolutely awful. What can I do to help? And that's the debate you would, that was the conversation you would have with your friends. So there's no different to having that conversation with that member of staff. What can we do as a business to help you? Because we as a business can't necessarily dictate what's going to be right for that person because we don't know. We don't know what it's going to, what the best solution is or the best bit of advice, the best support we can give to that particular person. So we have asked them 
and we can offer them things that we've got in our you know in our um, network or in our culture so if you've got occupied occupational health you know you can direct them through that and you can do signposting and um, elements of that but that leader has to have that knowledge and experience to be able to do that but it always comes down to the individual to be able to shape what support that they would like and how that would look and do you think I, I kind of always orientate naturally to the challenges um, and also the great joy that people can get through being a being a team leader, that kind of first entry into management mm. and also being responsible in some cases up to 20. But, you know, statistically, I think it's normally 12 to 15 people mm. it, often. Um, well, what's your view on how best to prepare team leaders? This is their first management position more often than not how best to prepare them for the, 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 the fact that within their group of 15-odd people, there's going to be people there that will have mental health challenges? So I think, I mean, first and foremost, you need to kind of create that culture-wide, stigma-free environment. You know, you, they need to know, and the employees need to know that actually we're an environment that embraces diversity. We are an inclusive culture. You know, and we recognise that people struggle in their life with their physical and mental health, and that's okay. And we're here to support and we're here to help you when those situations arise. And I think that sets the, the foundation, if you like, for team leaders that are stepping into that new role to say, okay, I know that I've got the support from the, the organisation. And I think as part of their ongoing you know, development and, and training, mental health should feature, you know, mental health awareness, what are the signs, what are the symptoms, how to signpost people to various support, not only within the business, but also externally, because some employees won't want to go to what's provided internally. Um, and, you know, how they can create cultures where their employees thrive. You know, how do they motivate? How do they inspire? What do they do in their team meetings? How are they doing their one-to-ones? All of those things play a part in how somebody feels in the organization and thus can impact the health. And where would you, where would you, um, for, for, for either companies or individuals that are out there that want to, that maybe don't have anything in place at the moment, but want to, but tick a lot of those boxes in terms of that cultural side of things, or at least if it's not in place now, it's aspirational and they're on a journey to get there. But in terms of mental health, there isn't anything. What would be the steps? Where would be the places that you would recommend people people go? Because it seems to me from what you're saying that fundamentally your foundation is born out of um, education. Because I'm just thinking about that kind of, um, you, you, you're kind of trying to mitigate what the, envir the environment is one that lends itself to adversely affecting people's mental health and therefore everything you do around them has to be about trying to alleviate that mm -hmm. that's right and if you think okay so the culture creating that culture is all about preventative action it's all about preventing poor mental health you know it's about recognizing we ask a lot of our staff we ask them to deliver x amount over a period of a day or a week or a month and we know that they are challenging targets. So how do we support them from a resiliency perspective, you know, an emotional resiliency perspective, when they are 
dealing with those pressurized environments what do we do to alleviate that do we support them with you know taking their breaks do we encourage them to take regular breaks are we making sure that they are hydrated throughout the day are we making sure they take time away from their desks when they are having their lunch you know you see it all the time so many people eating at the desks you know sat on the pc you know looking at the news or whatever it is are we actually encouraging breaks away are we encouraging you know that downtime and from an emotional emotional resiliency perspective i think that's incredibly important um that people have those tools because sometimes those customers that pick you know dial in and, and are talking to these analysts have their own challenges and their own priorities and their own issues in their lives. And sometimes those analysts are on the receiving end of that. And, and sometimes his conversations aren't, aren't very nice. Um, and I think it's incredibly important, you know, for those that are dealing with those types of calls that they have that emotionally, emotional resiliency toolkit, if you like, to challenge those situations. I think that's a great point. I think um, we shouldn't forget that in I would suggest a really high percentage of cases that at best the interactions that um, frontline team members in contact centers are going to be dealing with are emotionally neutral it, it if anything they're more likely to be to be negative mm. um, I remember I was responsible for a we were predominantly a sales based team and to help other teams actually and other support functions and departments better understand uh, the team I ran and also why we did things the way we did. So we tried to, to, to or we did, invest in making break rooms far nicer environments to be in, mm -hmm. making sure that people had like a zen area. We had um, not a prayer room, but a just a chill-out room. I uh, love that. And things like that. And people were kind of maybe raising eyebrows and things like that. And one of the things that we did, again, you, you mentioned at the start about how everything's recorded and monitored. Mm. We were able to take um, somebody who was well known in our team across the entire company as our top performer. And we took her yearly stats and showed that even though she was recognized as somebody, she won awards um, she was a lovely person, very humble, but she was well respected across the contact centre. We showed that in the year that she worked, her she still, even though she was successful, had thousands of rejections and no's wow. and negative calls. Wow. And her positive, the you know the sales that she achieved, were a tiny percentage. And all we did that for both for our team but for the wider business, was to talk to them about that continual negativity ha has an impact. You know, and everything we do as a management team and colleagues has to be about recognising that and helping people to... Because, um, if you know, that, that people are their sponges. They are soaking up that negativity. Even though it's not personally directed, mm. you're, you're still the recipient of a customer who is not happy or even if they are getting something resolved and it's more customer service focused mm. it, they they don't end that often with thanks very much how are you have a great day it, okay. with, with any meaning it, you just go on and you're a sponge and you just soak it up soak it up soak it up and our view at the time 
was everything we do is about recognizing that and doing all we can to your well, your word there at the outset of this keyword resilience but also mm. i think just care for them as well mm. and that's the crux of it isn't it is caring for people you know recognizing that sometimes you have a really bad day sometimes you have that really awful call sometimes i was speaking to an analyst a couple of weeks ago and she said to me you know i had a phone call from a lady who was querying her bill because she thought it was too high and she had said to her on the call, she can't pay for her children to be able to eat. And, and you imagine mm. the analyst that sat there faced with the dilemma of this kind of the situation where this poor mum can't pay for her children to eat versus the processes and procedures and guidelines that are dictated by the business. Um, and I think that that conflict has to be so challenging you know, and so incredibly hard to, to take on your shoulders um, and we have to recognise that as a business, that we are asking our analysts sometimes to, whilst the processes might be simple, whilst you know, the procedures that are documented and clearly defined, actually the interactions with the customers is what brings that emotional perspective, that stress, that anxiety, and sometimes you know, even develops into, into depression because of that weight you're holding on your shoulders with these people that are in financial turmoil or difficulties in their own life. So what can what can companies um, do? What what are some of the steps that they can take to put together practical solutions for this? So I think you know recognizing first and foremost that it is a challenging challenging role that they have to take is huge. You know, managers by managers saying, "Look, I understand. I I recognize that it's difficult. I think." Asking employees is also incredibly important. You know, what works for them? Um, you know, sometimes as managers, we can sometimes feel a little bit disconnected from the, the real work that's happening, if you like. Um, and, I, and I certainly encourage back to work days and all of those good activities for leaders so that they can remember how it actually feels to be on the front line taking those calls. I think um, creating those spaces where people can relax, that can take the time out, you know, break rooms, making sure that they are big enough to, to support those who are in, in um, the business. You know, sometimes you see these piddly little break rooms that can barely have 10 people in them, let alone, you know, 30 or people mm. who take their break at that time. You know, encouraging different ways and innovative ways to have meetings. They take them out for a walk. There's nothing wrong with a walking meeting. You'd be surprised on the creativity that you get off the back of it. But that freedom and that space to be able to think and talk about those things, to have that opportunity to let off steam, incredibly important. You know, just to go into a room with somebody and say, I've had a really, really crap call. It was awful. And even if you want to cry, you know, being able to do those types of things are all kind of creating that atmosphere that says, we get it, we understand. We can't change the fact that these people, these customers are in these difficult situations. We, we, we can't necessarily influence that. Um, but let, you know, let's make sure that you feel supported when you do have that difficult conversation. Let's talk about it. Let's see how we can do something about that particular call or that particular event or how can we better handle those things. Those are some great tips. Would you, I've seen as well through... Um, judging at awards the um the popular the gain in popularity of groups mental health well-being groups but also mental health first aiders would you be an advocate of schemes like that so <laughs> i always get asked whether i am an advocate of mental health first aiders and i i sit on the fence with it with it and the reason why is 
I think the co- concept is fantastic. Sometimes the delivery of those into organisations is, is, is a little bit questionable. I mean, the, the, the aim of mental health first aiders is really to drive awareness and drive education and to give people tools in recognising signs and symptoms and knowing where to go to direct people should they be struggling with their health. So signposting out, if you like. Um, but some organisations bring that in and those that are trained feel like they are then able to diagnose, that they are then able to act as a therapy, if you like, to those mm. people. And it can go incredibly wrong in organisations. And some will see it as a tick box exercise. Well, I've got mental mental health first aiders, so we're now supporting people that struggle with their health. And you know, the reality of that is, is sometimes questionable. Um, also, who gets chosen is often a debate. Who gets chosen to be a mental health first aider? Are they the right person to, to be you know, to act as the kind of the champion, if you like, of mental health first aid. So I always say to people, if they say to me that I'm thinking about getting mental health first aiders, my question to them is, why do you want mental health first aiders? And how will you embed them into your existing organisation? What's their role? What do you expect them to do? How do you expect them to support the business and employees? And if you define that and you get that right, I see mental health first aid as a good thing to do. If you don't do that planning, I think don't go ahead with it. Mm. What if if and if people are thinking, okay, so maybe um, we haven't got anything well defined enough if, for in order for that kind of scheme to be effective. What are some of the other alternatives that they might want to look into? So if that's not an option, I would start thinking about how do you get information out to people in your organisation that is about still building awareness, you know, still promoting education and understanding of mental health and, and well-being without having to go through that necessity. Now, MIND is a fantastic resource. Absolutely advocate MIND as their charity. Um, they've got some really fantastic toolkits online that you can download that are all free, you know, and you know that it's coming from a place um, that have that in. Um, invested interest and knowledge and experience um, and that's where I would go to get that information and start disseminating that information because that other challenge with mental health first aid is is only those that get trained are the ones that have the knowledge whereas actually mental health can impact all of us all of us have mental health and therefore we all need to be aware um, so it's you know it's expanding that knowledge and understanding on a broader scale. So if you don't go for the mental health first aider, go with the education and awareness because that's critically important. And then think about your organisation and how that can influence poor mental health in the workplace. And do you think it should be part of um, all managers of people's just fundamental training? Hundred percent, without a shadow of a doubt. It's so important that we understand how our our employees feel and that we're able to pick up the signs when somebody's not feeling okay. Now, we, as managers of staff, should know our employees inside and out. We know what's typical behaviour. We know how they would normally perform. So, therefore, we know when things are a little bit out of character for them. And it's picking up on those types of signs and saying, do you know what? You know, Bob hasn't come in for two days it's not like him at all I wonder what's going on or Bob's performance has dipped in the last week and actually previously he's been performing really well so you know what's going on with Bob and it's sitting down and having that conversation and being able to have that conversation and reacting then 
not in a month's time when you go and do the one-to-one. It's reacting there and then. Because some of those skills, even just in order to have those conversations in the first place, um, take some time to develop, don't they? Unless you are inherently just blessed with high emotional intelligence, the the ability in a fast-paced, hectic environment to sit down with a team member and create the environment and through the right questions to allow somebody to open up and share that perhaps whatever the, how the um, issue is being manifested into behavior is actually born out of mental health issues is, is, is a challenge I would suggest for a new team leader, a new manager. Absolutely. And I'm like, do you know what? I hate the terminology in mental health. I hate this branding. As a society, we like to give things labels. Mm. And as a result of that, we make it make it feel like it's something that is incredibly important and difficult. And how do we, you know, how do we get past this new thing? You know, we've always been responsible for the health and well-being of our employees. You know, we've got the Health and Safety Act that states we should be responsible for the welfare of our employees. And nowhere in that act does it say it's only for physical health. Nowhere. You know, we, it's always been about the full health of an employee. And it says we need to be responsible for managing the risks and arguably stress is a risk. Um, so I think once you get rid of this kind of terminology of mental health as a label, if you like, actually what you're doing is sitting down with that person and saying, I've noticed that there's been a change in the last few days. What's going on? And it's as simple as that conversation because they then say, well, actually, I just had a difficult few days um, and I don't really know what's going on. And say, OK, well, let me help you. Let me understand what's been happening. And they're all open questions or, or statements, if you like, exploratory statements, I call them, which allows somebody to talk. And you do less talking as the leader as part of that, because what you're doing is just extracting the information out of that person to understand how you can help and influence I think for leaders, I think it's incredibly important that they understand and, re- and know what reasonable adjustments they can make. You know, what is their sort of boundaries in terms of at work? So if somebody is struggling, you know, how can they support that individual? So let's say Bob is struggling. I don't know why we've got Bob. But we'll <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to I help Bob. <laughs> struggling with his, with his health and he has as a result you know since um impact to his performance targets and measures that he's got so what can that leader then do you know can they reduce the targets is that possible to do for a period of time is you know allowing bob more breaks possible to do is allowing bob a bit of downtime possible to do can we take bob off the phone for a period of time you know these are all questions that we need to know what you know, we're capable of doing within our business, what's allowed to do within our business to better support Bob in that particular situation. And then how do we subsequently tell everybody else that Bob's targets have changed, if it's widely known, or how we're going to be better supporting Bob is, you know, how do we communicate that? So I think they're the two two key parts for for leaders is recognising what reasonable adjustments we can make for that individual. Um, and what autonomy you have to be able to decide those things. And then how do we subsequently, you know, create that message for everybody else that says perhaps you'll notice some changes in the organization for bob as as well as thinking about bob you've also prompted me to think in the moment actually about your your view on that phrase about mental health um is it that it just 
makes our thinking a bit lazy and and then it it actually creates a block to dealing with things is that yes 100 percent. and and we use it as an excuse sometimes we don't understand it we don't get it we don't get mental health well you you do because you've had it all your life you know you, you know you have ups and downs in your life you know that some days you are um in a great mood some days you're in a bad mood sometimes things trigger you to be upset you know you as an individual recognize that and mental health exists on that continuum we all have it um and i think by using that terminology of mental health it absolutely does act as a blocker and people say i don't get it i don't understand it i don't understand what i should be doing with it because they feel like it's something completely new and very very scary and what do we do with it well We've always been responsible for looking after the health and well-being. We still look after our health and well-being. We've seen in contact centres employee engagement initiatives, employee experience initiatives. We ask employee net promoter scores, all of those things that we do, which are fundamentally asking our employees how they feel about the organisation. And we can put it in as many different guises and questions and approaches as we like. We are asking our employees, how do you feel about our organization how do you feel when you're in this organization and that is your is mental health a lot of this conversation has been aimed at uh, frontline team members the managers of them if, do you work as well with the more senior leaders and um, do they uh, they have the same challenges slightly different ones what and what, what's your view on that or experience That's- yeah, I think they have the same challenges just like everybody else. You know, we all have mental health, so they can be equally as impacted. Just perhaps the triggers and the reasons for that are, are can be different. Um, sometimes they're not. Um, they're still responsible for staff. You know, you don't ever lose responsibility of, of staff the more senior you get. So you are still responsible for supporting and engaging your staff. And a little bit, there's this... The higher you get from a seniority perspective, there's often this kind of view that you're better able to manage yourself um, and your health and all of those things are become less in, you know, less of a conversational point. But I argue that they should still be a topic of conversation. Um, and there are some CEOs out there and, and you know, big wigs that will still communicate and tell their stories. I was delivering an all-staff briefing a couple of weeks ago and the CEO stood up and said, you know, I want to say that I also struggle with my health, you know, and I've been going to mindfulness in the last six weeks because I've struggled um, with the stress and the anxiety of, of the role. Um, and he announced that to 300 of, of his staff, you know, and that's incredible that someone can stand up and do that. And I think by sharing those stories makes people more human and it recognizes that it is going to impact it could impact everybody you know just because you're a ceo of a business doesn't mean you're any less susceptible to mental health and well-being i mean it's it's so powerful just hearing you say things like that do you is it on a more localized level have the same impact as when um a footballer or a celebrity or somebody who probably you know is perceived in inverted commas Mm -hmm. to be successful it is successful let's you know is successful in their chosen field but Mm -hmm. does that um whilst also dealing with or have dealt with um physical mental um health challenges yeah and i think the more stories people share of those things you know the greater 
we can the greater the chance we have at reducing stigma you know in the workplace because people do fear that they're not going to have a job that they're going to be judged on in that same same conversation we were having earlier they're judged on their um, capability to do the job and I think it's incredibly powerful those messages that come out from people that have struggled or do struggle and continuing to struggle with their health but are incredibly successful and that's that whole piece around it doesn't define you and it's not going to impact you in your life. You can you know, get through mental health issues and still have a really successful and fruitful life with it. Do you, um, I mean, this is, this is a topic very close to my heart and it's fascinating to hear from you with your expertise and um, experience. Do you think, um, again, around this, the more, the more senior leadership role, so there's this, old-fashioned or still prevalent belief that you have to be infallible and you need to shoulder more cope more when does does that when does that lead to burnout and then burnout then leads to more ongoing health issues yeah and I think that that weight and that pressure particularly in in periods of difficult periods of time with businesses can um, cause a humongous amount of weight and I've been with you know with um, CEOs that have worked solidly for you know three or four days that I don't even think went home because they had a crisis in their organization you know needed them they didn't see the kids they didn't see the family you know and for me that is absolutely burnout it might not happen right then and there because they're going to be on adrenaline um, it will happen afterwards and that impact can be significant but you can absolutely take steps as that as that CEO or that senior leader to making sure that you you take into check those things you know that your job's going to be a weight carrying weight bearing one you know that there are going to be really really difficult conversations and issues that you're going to have to contend with and decisions that you're going to make that are going to affect a lot of people's lives you know for example if you're in a in a situation where there's some significant cost savings that you need to make or you need to make some significant changes into your organisation and that results in redundancies, but don't make these decisions lightly. Um, and that's a huge burden to, to bear. Um, and, and making sure that regularly you take that time and you have those contacts in your business that you can talk to, HR as, as one of those people, where you can confide in and say, look, it is going to be tough. Let's Let's think about how we can maintain your resiliency and and making sure that you're feeling as good as you can be. Do you, and do you think, um, do you still think we need to do more in terms of breaking down? Because there are still stigmas. There are still people that will be loath to even address, let alone admit to having struggles um, for fear of what they believe the implications are to that. Yeah, I think it's I think it's the biggest challenge facing us today is being, you know, feeling okay to raise your hand and ask for help in an organisation and that fear of that. And you know, particularly for men, um, you know, men are three times more likely to take their own life than women. Um, you know, the highest suicide rate for men is aged between forty five and forty nine. It's a very real challenge that we that we have that people are feeling. They have nowhere to turn and the only option that they have in life is to, to, to take their own life um and i and i think it's really important that we start challenging that stigma and it starts with saying look we're challenging the stigma let's create some commitments in our organization that say it's okay to not feel 
good sometimes it's okay to struggle with mental health and we're here as an organization to support you and as employees as managers as leaders as ceos all encompassing we recognize that it can be a challenge in our life um so i think it's you know it is a very real issue i think you you've hit the nail on the head i mean um taking that step to challenge the stigma and say we are going to be a caring company and here is how we are going to evidence that has been something I've seen actually in where I've worked for the last kind of four and a half years we uh, through uh, a team member and then our um, team member Ellie Neal and then our HR director um, Judith Yates they put together a mental health uh, well-being champions like a, it was just a collection of people who were asked to come forward to meet um, share their stories share their background each um, story was then the focus for that month around it may have been depression it may have been anxiety it may have been it, it's been all kinds of things and just seeing the impact that has had uh, gently through the through the workforce and the team and people kind of coming forward um has been you know it's it's actually it's been inspirational to to see what one of the things um it then kind of led to it prompted in me is sharing i, I felt you know it's going to be i would be a hypocrite if i didn't um share my own personal story with that group and then therefore with the with a company and I think to your point about men and yes it's a man it's a man's world and everything that that brings and all of that kind of stuff but nonetheless like you say there's still um you were sharing with me before we recorded about some of the stats and uh, it would be good to just talk to them in a sec but um it kind of galvanized me to share about five years ago through dealing with redundancy and the end of my kind of 19 year marriage that that affected me hugely you know I um whilst always been open-minded I was proud of getting to a senior level I thought I was as tough as old boots um and dealing with I think the the perception of shame as well because you think how yeah. how can this be happening to me I'm a leader I'm a father um and but recognizing you know what i'm still all of those things i'm still a good father i'm still good at my job but i'm having i'm i need some help right now um and then being able to talk about it i can't uh, at no point since doing that has there been any negativity from people you know coming to me and talking and saying thanks thanks for sharing mm. um I don't know why I've, I don't know why I just felt the need to to share, <laughs> to share that now. It wasn't even really in response to a question, but um... I think it's I think it's great that you've shared it. I think talking about it, you know, particularly when you've gone through that and you've experienced it, will help so many people. You know, see that you have had a really successful career. You're a fantastic dad. You know, all of those great things, but you have struggled with your health, but it hasn't defined you. It's just mm. shaped you. It, it led to some things that now, thankfully, um, for a long, for the, since then, actually, my mental health has been fine. But as a result of taking and continuing with some things that I did, I did then to be able to cope through a more kind of intense period 
things like mindfulness, things like um, I've embraced minimalism and just taking a bit more time to, to listen and to slow my thinking down, mm-hmm. um, looking more into art and all of these different things have stood the, the test of time. And I think being able to share them because for different people, the solutions and the makeup of those solutions are going to be different, aren't they? Yes. Yeah, incredibly different. What works for one won't always work for another. And um, I did a mindfulness session, a four-week mindfulness session, and each one is very different. So we use the senses a lot, you know, physical, eyesight, touch, um, listening, all of those types of things. And each one is very different. And this lady came in and said, I've tried loads of self-help books, doesn't work. Um, but I thought I'd come along to your mindfulness session. And we did a mindfulness session. And she said, no, it doesn't work, doesn't work, doesn't work. Um, but she came along to the next one. And that next one, we used sunflowers as part of our mindfulness. Each week was very different. One, we used listening to music because recognising that everyone does something slightly different or what works for them is going to be different. We did taste, we did listening, and we did touch and, the scent and um, smell. But this, this mindfulness didn't work for this lady until she used the sunflower. And that became her go-to point for all of the stresses that she has in her life. And even now, even we've done a couple of other different types of mindfulness and embracing different things, she still remembers the sunflower. And that's still her go-to place. And she says, every time I'm feeling stressed or I'm feeling anxious, I just picture in my head this wonderful field of sunflowers. And that has been the help that she's needed. And Mm -hmm. she's been struggling with that 20 years Mm. maybe and it's just that one little thing um and so you just don't know what it is sometimes that's going to work for you but recognizing it is different for every single person you know what works for one might not work for another that's fascinating what would you what would you say um to people you mentioned before and i really like the phrase around it's about preventative so what would you say to people listening what would be the routines or the self-care routines that you would suggest people undertake? So for people, for people to undertake, you need to think about the things that relax you, that calm you, that calm you down, that help you get that space to think, you know, whether that's mindfulness, whether that's going out for a walk, whether that's playing sports, whether that's cooking a nice meal. You know, all of these things that we like to do are very good for our sense of well-being. They won't necessarily resolve some of those issues in your life you know they're not necessarily going to resolve perhaps that financial turmoil you're in but what they will do is create the space in your head to be able to better manage that situation and to be able to think a little bit more clearly so I would encourage people to try things that they like doing to embrace those moments and find time in the day to do those things find time to listen to that your favorite song find time to, to go out for that walk find time to go and savor those favorite sweets you like whatever it is that you like to do embrace it as part of your day don't make it as part of a to-do list and nice to have ingrain it as part of your every day um and and despite kind of that growing awareness and focus that we've got we've still got you know a significant amount of organizations that aren't embracing change and, and challenging that you know and only 30 percent of managers have reported that they've received adequate training so earlier on when we were talking about you know how how incredibly important it is for every single manager including those that are coming up you know the ranks and into the first team leader positions to make sure that they do get the the right training that they that they need 
And the statistics around suicide, you know, 32% of adults have felt, that have felt stressed have also experienced suicidal thoughts. So those who have felt stressed have experienced suicidal thoughts. 32% is staggering. Mm-hmm. You know, 20, just over 20 people in 100 will have suicidal thoughts. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to carry out that, that act. But actually, you know, a lot of people who do end their life have spoken about wanting to end their life. Um, we talked a bit about, you know, men three times more likely to take their own life than, than women and that higher, higher suicide rate for men being aged 45 to 49. But what's incredibly fantastic is whilst you know it is at its highest most importantly it's been decreasing and it's now at its lowest that it ever has been for 30 years so for it's, it's the lowest figure so we know that change is happening we know that things are making a difference to people we know that men are are starting to embrace talking about how they're feeling um perhaps the pace isn't quite as quick as as you know, we would like, but absolutely there is change happening and it being the lowest for over 30 years is, is fantastic. We just hope that it continues. Helen, thanks for, thanks for sharing them and just thanks for sharing both your own personal um, story but all your expertise as well. I know people, I, I've certainly found it interesting and helpful. Is there a, a, a final message you'd want to share with people that might be listening that either themselves or know someone who would benefit from um, just thinking about or taking some steps to improve their well-being? I think for organisations, don't fear um, the words mental health. Don't fear embracing it. You know, there are things that you can do in your organisation, in your culture that, that sit comfortably, that make sense, that will support what you're trying to achieve as a business. So I think, you know, embracing that, that the fact that we are changing as a society and that mental health is so incredibly important and the more that we do from an organisation perspective to prevent um, poor mental health, the better that we can be and, and the more successful as a business we will be. For those that are struggling individually, it's really important that you know that you're not alone. There is absolutely help available. You know, if that's not in the organisations that you're working, it certainly is more accessible online and, and Mind and the Samaritans are two of the best places to go to to get that, that help and support. Um, so if you are struggling, just know that you are not alone and there are people that can help. Helen, Helen, that's brilliant. Thank you very much. Uh, Helen Ginman, uh, founder of Unique and Inclusive Wellbeing. It's been a pleasure. I've really, really enjoyed this. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. Thank you, Martin. Thanks. Bye. Bye.